O God in three persons, blessed Trinity, how easy it is for us to talk about you in the third person. God is good. God is love. God is holy. But what is worship if it's not that sacred opportunity to open our hearts directly to you in the first person? So, dear God, here we go. You are Holy Father, you are Holy Christ, you are Holy Spirit. As we plunge into Holy Scripture, we listen for your voice. Teach us. Hide this little preacher. Hide us all so that you might be front and center. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Question. How do you teach a subject like the Trinity, where libraries have shelves filled with books on the Trinity? Question. How do you teach a subject like the Trinity in about a half hour? Answer. You talk very fast. So hold on to your pew, grab your Bible. We're going right now. We have just begun. Open your Bible, please, to John chapter 14. The Gospel of John chapter 14. And some of you say, you know what, Dwight? Let me time out, please. Who cares about the Trinity? Ah, let me ask you a few questions. Do you know that one of our presidential candidates today does not believe in the Trinity? Mormons believe that Christ himself was created by God. Did you know that Jehovah's Witnesses don't believe in the Trinity either, and so they've crafted their own translation to prove their point of view? Do you know that 1.4 billion Muslims on the planet today do not believe in the Trinity, and neither do the Jews? So whether you believe in the Trinity or not makes all the difference in the world, now doesn't it? Which is why you need to know why you believe what you believe. So let's go. You're ready. You're opening up to John 14. And while you're finding John 14, let's employ a little bit of, of, of philosophical logic, okay? The crowning depiction of God in all of sacred literature, the crowning depiction of God goes like this. God is, how's it go? God is love. Let's put it on the screen. 1 John chapter 4, verse 8. Let's read it out loud together. God is love. And what is love? I suppose if we went to the upper room, we couldn't find a more powerful definition of love than what Jesus himself gave. We've already read these words before, John 15, 13. You can have no greater love than this, than to lay down your life for your, for your friends. Love presupposes the existence of somebody else. Love can only flourish and exist in the context of relationship or friendship. All right? So God is love. God needs someone else in order to be love. To describe God's nature is to depict him always in relationship with another. Okay. Now, the Bible also teaches that God is the creator of the entire universe, true or false. But of course. Which means logically, now think, which means logically there was a time when there was only God. Isn't that right? Matter is not eternal. Only God is eternal. So there was a time when there was only God. Now look, if God were singular, 
if he were all by himself at that time in the distant past when there was nothing but God in existence, then God could not be love at that time, for love requires the presence of another to receive it. Which would mean love then cannot be the very essence of God, for there was a time when there was no one to love. Unless, of course... God is plurality rather than singularity. There's a dynamite quotation I want to share with you right now. So grab your study guide. Come on, let's go. Grab your study guide. Brand new study guide in your worship bulletin today. You didn't get a study guide. Here come the world's friendliest ushers your way. You're going to want that this is a big study guide. You're going to want to keep this study guide. Put your hand up if you didn't get a study guide when you came in, in the balcony. In the sanctuary, anybody in the youth chapel, hold your hand up. We want to make sure the study guide is yours. And by the way, those of you who are watching, we're delighted to have you. You can have the same study guide. Let me put it on the screen for you, our website. Go to that website. There you see it on the screen right now. Go to that website. The study guide is waiting for you, www.pmchurch.tv. You're looking for our series, The Last Days. These are the last days of Jesus' life. As Pastor Jose a moment ago reminded us, the book of John, the fourth gospel, is our theme. And by the way, worship team, splendid and glorious worship today. Thank you for, for leading us. You're looking for this series entitled, The Last Days, Today's Teaching, Trinity Under Fire. When you see Trinity Under Fire, let's say study guide, you'll get a double-sided study guide today. You're going to want the study guide, and so those of you who are watching live streaming, we're delighted to have you. Go to that website, get the study guide, come on, be a part of this live, wherever in the nation or the world you are. Let's go. Let's put the first, first statement on the screen that we read just a moment ago. Fill it in, please. 1 John chapter 4, verse 8, God is love. That is the shining crowning depiction of God in Holy Scripture. God is love. Now, let me tell you about a book. Woody Whitten, Jerry Moon, and John Reeves, three professors on the campus of Andrews University, they collaborated to write a very helpful book on the Trinity, which I have, which I have read, and which you will be blessed when you do. I want to pull a quotation right out of that book. And I want, to, I want you to brood over this quotation. By the way, the title of the book, The Trinity, Understanding God's Love, His Plan of Salvation, and Christian Relationships. I have to be careful because the author, Woody Wooden, is sitting right over there. So I'll, I'll make sure I quote this correctly. But uh, he wrote the segment on, on the theological development of the Trinity. And so he found this quotation. I love it. It's from Bruce Metzger. Bruce M. Metzger, the great, the great New Testament scholar, Greek scholar. All right, the words are on the screen. You'll have to fill them in. The Unitarian, there are Americans who call themselves Unitarians. They say only one God. No Trinity, just one God. The Unitarian professes to agree with the statement that God is love. This is Metzger writing. But these words, God is love, have no real meaning unless God is at least two persons. We just ran through that little bit of philosophical logic a moment ago. You have to have two. Love is something that one person has for another person. If God were a single person, then before the universe was made, he was not love. Couldn't have been. For if love be of the essence of God, he must always love and being eternal, I thought this was very helpful, he must have possessed an eternal object of love. 
Furthermore, keep reading, perfect love is possible only between equals. Good point. Just as a man cannot satisfy or realize his powers of love by loving lower animals, and wasn't that God's point with Adam, by the way? He said, hey, Adam, name the animals. See if any one of these you'll be happy with. He was not happy. Just as man cannot be satisfied or realize his powers of love by loving lower animals. The quotation goes on. So, this was helpful. God cannot satisfy or realize his love by loving man or any creature. Oh, come on, God. Aren't I enough? Wouldn't you be happy? Just you and me? And the answer is no. I need somebody like me to love and to receive and give. That's what goes on. Being infinite... He, God, must have eternally possessed an infinite object of his love. And I like this, jot it down. Some alter ego. Some alter ego. Or to use the language of traditional Christian theology, a consubstantial. Oh, my, Dwight, what's that word? I put it in brackets there. What's a consubstantial? Of one or the same being. He needed someone of one or the same being. Metzger goes on, co-eternal and co-equal son. Right in the word son. End quote. Look, just, just think. In order for God to be God and to be loved, he must have at least one co-equal, one co-eternal person with whom he bestows love and from whom he receives love. He has to have it or he's not love. In eternity past, way back there, he had to have it. In eternity future, he has to still have it in order to be loved. Here's, a, here's another quotation, and then we'll plunge into the scripture. Otto H. Christensen, also very helpful. Thank you. Woody, for including these. And we'll get to quoting you in just a minute. All right, Otto Christensen, put it on the screen. There is a sense in which the fact that God is love requires that he be more than one person. Love must have both a subject and an object. That was helpful for me. Thus, prior to the creation of other persons, humans, God could not have really loved and thus would not have been truly loved. If, however, there have always been multiple persons, write that down, if there have always been multiple persons within the Trinity itself among whom love could be mutually exercised, expressed, and experienced, then God could always have been actively loving. Now notice this point. This, this now tightens it up. Because God is three persons rather than two, there is a dimension of openness and extension not necessarily found in a love relationship between two persons which can sometimes be quite closed in nature. End quote. Come on. You watch lovers. We're getting, getting close to springtime. Watch young lovers on this campus. They are totally in themselves. I mean totally. There's nothing but the two of them. That's the problem with two. Two, in fact, jot this down. Two persons form a couple. Three persons become community. See? Two is not enough. Three now to capture the fullness. You've got to have three. And that's why, by the way, let me just tell you, you, you young adults who are looking forward to getting married one of these days, that's why you will add a child. You will add a child to your twosome because twosome you will begin to sense. You want to expand. You want to move from couple to community. Fascinating. Listen, let's turn from philosophical logic. Let's plunge into Scripture. You, did you already find John 14? Open your Bible to John 14. Let's go. Because what is clear here in the fourth gospel, and by the way, we are now, don't miss, next time you and I are together, we are in the heart of Gethsemane. 
the denier, the denial, the denied. And our story is there. Don't miss the next one. We're now, we're, 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 Calvary is just minutes away. But one last time, we go to the Upper Room Discourse. Jot this down, will you? In John 13 through 17, Jesus declares his unity with the Father. And all those references after the Father there, I went through and read the entire Upper Room Discourse this week, took notes. Everywhere Jesus talks about that unity with his Father, I jotted the references down. Check them out later. Let's just, let's just examine one of them. Uh, John 14. You've already found it, and I have not yet. John 14. Here we go. This is a familiar passage. Let's pick it up in verse 5. John 14, I'm in the New King James Version. By the way, you didn't bring your Bible. You've got to track this. You must track this. Let me give you a page number, page 726. Grab the pew Bible in front of you. Let's go. John 14, verse 5. Thomas said to Jesus, Lord, we do not know where you're going, and how can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If, verse 7, you had known me, you would have known my Father also. And from now on you know him and have seen him. Philip said, said to him, Lord, show us the Father and it is sufficient for us. Jesus says to him in, in incredulous, incredulous tones, Have I been so long with you and yet you have not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father in me? The words that I speak to you. I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me, he does the works. Now those who reject the teaching, the Bible teaching of the Trinity, they say, aha, there it is, Dwight. Thank you for bringing that passage out. There it is, proof that the Father and Son are interchangeable. Sometimes he calls himself the Son. Sometimes he calls himself the Father. He's in me. I'm in him. See, it's all one person. Hold on. No, no. That's the ancient heresy called modalism. That heresy taught that God appeared in different modes depending on what he needs. No, 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 no. Look at Jesus. Drop down to verse 16. In fact, we'll put it on the screen. No, I need to fill up. I need to fill in. Uh, go back to John 14. Thank you for that. John 14, verses 9 and 10. Make sure you get that on the screen. John 14, 9 and 10. He who has seen me has seen the Father. I am in the Father and the Father in me. Well, if you just took a casual reading, say, oh, that's clear. He's just switching hats. You can call me Father now. You can call me Son. No, 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 no. Look at, John, look at, look at verse 16, same chapter. And you'll need to fill this in as well. Jesus speaking, and I, one being, will ask the Father, right in the word ask. By the way, isn't that something? He's going to ask. If he were the Father, I'll ask myself. It doesn't even make sense. I will ask myself. No. And I, one being, will ask the Father, another being, and he will give you another helper, a third being. Clearly, Jesus differentiates between himself and God the Father, and we might add the Holy Spirit or helper. They are three separate persons. And yet Jesus, isn't this something? Jesus declares himself to be one with the Father. Why does he say that? Very clearly he says it. Oh, you watch why he says it. Just turn, keep your, keep your little ribbon right there. Just turn to uh, chapter 10. Turn back a few pages to chapter 10. Find out now why he says the Father and I are one. Here's, here's the very line where he says it. Chapter 10, John 10, verse 30. Jesus speaking. You have a red-letter Bible. This would be bright red. I and my Father are one. 
Now, notice the response. Verse 31, then the Jews took up stones again to stone him, and Jesus answered them, many good works I have shown you from my Father. For which of these works do you stone me? And they answered him, verse 33, saying, for a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy. What's blasphemy? Ah, you being a man, make yourself God. They know exactly what he has said. When he says the Father and I are one, he's saying, I am divine. I am God. And they pick up stones. I tell you what, again and again, Jesus in the fourth gospel declares his unity, his equality with Almighty God. In fact, one more place, and this, this is the clincher, and it actually happens earlier, John 8. So just turn back a few more pages at the very end of the chapter, John 8. Jesus is speaking to the Jewish leaders again. This is John 8, verse 58. And Jesus said to them, most assuredly... Now remember, in the, uh, in the Greek, a double amen. Woo, slow down. This is big. This is big. Amen, amen. Jesus said to them, amen, amen. I say to you, before Abraham was, what? I am. All, capitalized, all capitals, by the way. Because scholars are absolutely clear, and so were his listeners, that Jesus is linking himself to the roaring flames of the burning bush and the, the eternal self-existent one who thunders out of the flames to Moses who is on his face. I am who I am. Jesus is saying, I am that God. And then, look at verse 59. No question, they got it. Verse 59, and then they took up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself, went out of the temple, going through the midst of them, and so passed by. Ladies and gentlemen, in the gospel, the fourth gospel, the divinity of Christ is repeated again and again. I love these uh, symbols that uh, Jose, Chaplain Jose, set up for our worship today. John introduces seven of these claims of Christ with the I am. And, and in the Greek, it has to be all caps in order to capture the meaning of that I am. Seven of them. Jesus says, I am the bread. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. I am the light. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the vine. Seven of them. No question. The deity and divinity of Christ confirmed in the fourth gospel. In fact, fill this in. Fill this in so that you won't forget it. The gospel of John unequivocally declares the deity and divinity of Christ. Now that slide's not over. But get that down. Unequivocally declares the deity and divinity of Christ... For the gospel begins with its mighty prologue, and the Word was God. And it ends with the grand confession of Thomas, my Lord and my God. Bookended by two claims to divinity. So for those who study Holy Scripture, and there are some even today within the Christian community and within my community of faith who do not see what the Bible is teaching. And they're saying, no, there is no Trinity. The Gospel of John is unassailable, unassailable evidence corroborating the teaching 
that you can't be living in eternity past all alone and be love. You can't be the essence of who you say you are if there is nobody to receive that love. Wow. So John very much wants us to catch, to capture the unity that Jesus senses with his Father. Let's just put a few more under this uh, category. John 14, verse 23, Jesus speaking here. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my Father will love him. And we, now notice this, plural, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Note it very carefully, ladies and gentlemen. Here you have one who claims to be in the divine inner circle using the plural pronoun to refer to themselves. By the way, isn't that amazing that the Bible opens in the book of Genesis with that same plural being exercised? We're kind of left with this, this mysterious plural. What's, what's happening here? Let us make man in our image the same plural pronouns. Let us make man in our image. Jot it down. Jesus himself is describing God as plurality. He is plural. John 14, 31... I love the Father. Let me just run a few more by you. John 15, 15. All things I heard from my Father, I have made known to you. How about another one? John 16, 32. I'm not alone because the Father is with me. The intense unity of Jesus with his Father. And would you jot this down? John 17. Jesus' entire prayer is steeped in language that declares his unity with the Father. There is no question. In fact... We've got to do this. Go back to John 17. I want to read it in your Bible. John 17. Just, just catch this flavor. The whole prayer is steeped in the language of Christ and Father, the oneness they enjoy. This is John 17. Beginning, this is the last prayer Jesus will ever pray for you and me. His prayers from henceforth are for himself. When we get to Gethsemane, you'll see. Jesus spoke these words. This is John 17. Jesus spoke, those, spoke these words, lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Time, time for Calvary. The hour has come. Glorify your Son that your Son may also glorify you. Verse 2, as you have given him authority over all flesh that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. Now notice verse 3. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. You cannot give eternal life unless you are eternal yourself. He's making the very clear statement, I am as eternal as the Father. Look at verse 4. I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Isn't that something? It says in, John, in, in the prologue, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And by Him all things which are came into being. Before the Word created the entire universe, the Word was made flesh. Before He created the entire universe, He and the Father were. The glory I shared with you before creation. You can't have love without a plurality. Wow. But would you jot this down? In John 14 through 16, Jesus is just as much declaring his unity with the Holy Spirit. Jot that down. And there are the references for the Holy Spirit. John 14, 26. Let's just catch, catch just a sampling of these. John 14, 26. Fill it in, please. But the helper, the Holy Spirit, that would be one being... All right, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, that's one being, whom the Father, another being, will send in my name a third being. 
He, now notice this, He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. Notice how closely Jesus describes His collaboration with the Holy Spirit. Look, there is so much more I wish I could tell you, but there's no more time now. I'm about to die. But when He comes, He'll pick it right up and He'll teach you. He'll teach you the rest. Close collaboration. And by the way, jot this down, will you? Note that the upper room discourse intentionally uses the masculine pronoun he. Write that in. It uses the masculine pronoun he to refer to the Holy Spirit rather than the neuter pronoun it. You see, the spirit in Greek is it. It's neuter. It should receive, the antecedent should be it. But here, the pronoun. The pronoun is he. John says, I know the rules of grammar here, but I'm switching the rules. I want you to know that the, that the Holy Spirit is a he. He's a person. Keep writing. Thus affirming the biblical truth that the Holy Spirit is not an impersonal spirit. Some people try to say, well, it's just the spirit that goes out of God's heart. It's just the spirit that goes, goes out of God. No, 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 no. He's not an impersonal spirit that emanates from the Father or the Son, but is rather a personal being. Key word. Would you write that in, please? But the Holy Spirit is rather a personal being that joins them in their divine mission. I mean, you look at all his personal activities just here in the upper room discourse. He teaches, he dwells, he reminds, he testifies, he convicts, he guides, he glorifies. It's the action of a person. He's not just a little emanation. He's a person, real life person. That's why Jesus can say, John 15, 26, he will testify of me. Look at how tight Jesus and the Holy Spirit are. He will testify of me, John 15, 26. Look at John 16, 14. He will glorify me. Clearly, there's a profound unity between Jesus and the Holy Spirit, just as there is between Jesus and the Father. And clearly, the Holy Spirit is just as divine as Jesus and the Father are. No equivocation. The evidence is clear. All three. Divine. Leading Woody Whitten. And Woody wrote these words and put them on the screen for you, and you need to fill them in. Please, Woodrow Whitten. The triunity of the one God. I like, that, uh, I like that phrase. The triunity of the one God. That's good. The triunity of the one God is the profound unity or oneness inherent in the doctrine of the Trinity. Here are three Divine beings, write that down. Here are three divine beings lined up together in such a way as to point to their oneness of purpose in imparting grace and love to God's people through their deep fellowship with one another and the redeemed, end quote. That's from the book, The Trinity. Understanding God's love, His plan of salvation, and Christian relationships. Ladies and gentlemen, it is no wonder that the New Testament radiates with the glory of the Trinity. Let me run these by you real fast. Keep your wrist uh, moving here because here we go. Let's go to the baptism of Jesus. The, the Trinity at Jesus' baptism. Fill that in, please. And then let's read John, uh, Matthew 3, verse 16. When Jesus had been baptized, he came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God, there is being number two, descending like a dove and alighting upon him. And suddenly a voice came from heaven, being number three, saying, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. You don't think the Trinity was going to miss out on the launching, the public launching of the Messiah's mission? Are you kidding? They were there together. By the way, jot it down, the next blank 
The Trinity is at your baptism too. Not just Jesus' baptism, your baptism. You don't think the Trinity would miss out on the day you're baptized into, in their name, do you? Are you kidding? They'll all be there if you haven't been baptized yet. Matthew 28, let's read that, verse 19. Jesus' great gospel commission. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. Amen for the Trinity being at our baptisms. Keep writing. Notice the Trinity is also in our church. I want to go back to uh, the baptism just for a minute. I'm scrambling, uh, making them scramble up in mezzanine. But I want to go back to that quotation. I want you to get this quotation. Speaking of your baptism, a century ago, Ellen White wrote these words. I want you to see them. I'll put them on the screen for you. Here we go. Little book evangelism. There are three living persons of the heavenly trio. Three. Three living persons of the heavenly trio. In the name of these three great powers... Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Those who receive Christ by living faith are baptized. Keep reading. And these powers will cooperate with the obedient subjects of heaven in their efforts to live the new life in Christ. When you come to Jesus and you are baptized in Him, the three great powers of the universe combine to make it a win-win for you. Win-win for you to eternity. Hallelujah, I say. Amen. How about you? Isn't that something? The Trinity's on your side. Okay, now we go to the Trinity in our church. I love this. The Trinity in our church. Did you write that down? Look at Paul here. We'll read uh, 1 Corinthians 12, verses 4, 5, and 6. Let's go to that, please. There are diversities of gifts, but the same Spirit. One being. Next verse. There are differences of ministries, but the same Lord. Second being. Next verse. And there are diversities of activities, but it is the same God who works all in all. The Trinity is in the thick of the church. That's why the church is so precious to God. He will never abandon the church. Let me give you another one. The Trinity is in the thick of our worship. What we were doing today, what we are doing today, the Trinity is drawn to this kind of, this, this kind of experience. The Trinity in our worship, look at this. I love this. One of the great benedictions of the New Testament. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. Let me give you one more. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 2. The Trinity in our salvation. They are caught up in our salvation from stem to stern. Take a look at this verse. We are elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in sanctification of the Spirit, keep reading, for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace be multiplied, because grace and peace are what happen when the Trinity come into your life. Grace and peace to you. Uh, Ladies and gentlemen, have you noticed, when the New Testament places all three beings in the same expression, as we just saw, on the same level as in these five passages, it is hard to avoid the conclusion that all three beings are viewed as persons of equal standing, equal stature, and equal status. The Trinity, what Woody Whitten calls the triunity of the one God, or as he puts it in another place, the tri-personal Godhead. And by the way, you're saying, oh, Dwight, that's just the New Testament. The Old Testament doesn't support that. Whoa, take a look. Let's go back to the Old Testament. Do you remember the majestic Hebrew Shema? Oh, you remember it. I'll put it on the screen for you. You'll have to fill it in. This is Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. Hear, O Israel, 
The Lord our God, the Lord is what? Write that down. The Lord is one. Ah, do I see? I told you. No Trinity. One God, not three persons. Not so fast. This is fascinating. Wait till you, wait till you hear this. You see, Moses carefully selected the Hebrew word for one. Jot this down, will you? Instead of choosing the word yachid, which means one in the sense of only or alone, Moses chose the plural word echad, which means one among others in a joined or shared oneness. He uses a plural, for the Lord our God is one. It's the very same word, by the way, that appears in Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. Moses' little homily, maybe it was the Creator's homily, after Adam and Eve were brought to each other, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one. Echad, two beings who share oneness. They shall become one flesh. Isn't that amazing? Two very distinct and different human beings becoming one in marriage. Even so, three distinct and different divine beings within the Trinity revealing a similar oneness. Wow. Norman Gully in his new volume two of his systematic theology. I just bought it this week. The title of the volume two is God is Trinity. He quotes another theologian. Let me put it on the screen for you. Millard Erickson observes that the unity of husband and wife is not uniqueness, but it's the unity of diversity. It speaks of union rather than aloneness. You see, the Bible doesn't describe God with the oneness of aloneness. Oh, he's all alone before there was a universe. No. The Bible describes God, it depicts him with the oneness of unity. Just like the unity of a godly marriage where two become one, even so the Trinity, three, three are one. Let us make man in our image. And indeed, they did. We become one just as they are one. Wow, it's a mystery. Two diverse people coming together and becoming one in marriage. It's a mystery. Three diverse persons together as the Trinity. But I know what you're saying. You're saying, hey, you know something, Dwight? So what? I mean, please. What difference does this make for my life in the third millennium? You remember Jesus' upper room discourse? how he demonstrates his passionate unity with the Father, his passionate unity with the Spirit, guess what? In that same upper room, he prays for passionate unity, his passionate unity with you and me. In fact, listen to this. Four times in his closing prayer, the last prayer he prays before his crucifixion for you and me. Four times. Notice this prayer. Put it on the screen. Just flying by. Verse 11 of chapter 17. O Father, that they may be one as we are. Look at the next verse. Verse 21. O Father, that they may all be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. Look at the next verse. Verse 22. O Father, that they may be one just as we are one. Look at verse 23. Father, I, I and them and you and me, that they may be perfect in one. I like the way the NIV renders that. That they may be brought to complete unity. The last prayer he prays for us. Father, bring them, please, to complete unity. So, how united, how united are we around here? How united are we? Are we one even as the Father and Christ and Spirit are one? You know what they say, don't you? 
They say marriage is when two people become one. The trouble starts when they have to decide which one. Isn't that the truth? Yeah, we're one, but yeah, which one are we going to be, you or me? That's perhaps the seed of our own disunity. I was sitting with a group of denominational leaders this last week, and one of our senior leaders commented that he feared that our schools and our hospitals and our churches are drifting apart into aloneness rather than oneness. The days of institutional unity and partnership Long gone. Every organization now looks out for itself first. And by the way, that's not just institutions. That's people, Christian people, Adventist Christian people, people who allow racial differences to breed disunity, people who allow socioeconomic educational differences to isolate ourselves in stifling silos of our own making, people who have abandoned interracial, intergenerational, institutional collaboration. In unity. Where are those days? Do we have to worship separately? Do we have to socialize separately? Do we have to eat in the cafeteria separately? Jesus' last prayer for us, put it on the screen. Oh, Father, that they may be one just as we are one. Because we were created for unity within community. Did you know that? In fact, did you know that the word unity is right there? You see the word unity in the word community? Sure you do. There it is. Unity is in, con- in community. You can't have community without unity. If you take the unity out of community, you have calm. <laughs> and who wants calm? You have to have unity and community for community to be community. And that's the Trinity. They have found unity. They have displayed for us unity within community. That's how the Trinity has lived forever and ever. And that's how humanity must learn to live. Unity within community. That's the calling. That's why the Trinity makes such a big difference for you and me. We can't just brush this off as old academic doctrinal Ah, who cares? No, it matters everything to the survival of this community of faith. For if we abandon unity, there will be no community, and then we're doomed. You say, what's that mean, unity and community? Just ask the Trinity. You want the Trinity to answer that? In closing, let let me share with you the Trinity's answer. Here it is. Jot it down, will you please? The unity of the Trinity is the fruit of mutual submission. I wrestled for a while. I said, should we put the word subordination? Nah, it just feels too clingy. The Trinity demonstrates unity through mutual submission. Watch how this works. Keep your pen moving. The Father submits to the Son. In Hebrews chapter 1, verse verse 13, the Father comes and says, Son, sit right here because I'm going to take care of your enemies for you and I'm going to put them under your your feet as your footstool. The Father submits himself to the Son. In, in, in Philippians chapter 2, he says, Okay, all universe, I want you to bow down to him. Every knee will bow down to Christ. The Father submits himself to the Son, and guess what? It works the other way. The Son submits himself to the Father. 
That's huge. Jesus says in John 5, 19, I can't do anything on my own. Everything I do comes from the Father. Boy, he says, the Father speaks. I speak. He has submitted himself to the Son. In fact, in, in, to the Father, rather. In fact, in Philippians 2, it says that the Son, rather than choosing equality with God to be something grasped at, empties himself. Submits to the Father. You, you, I come down. And by the way, you guessed it. The Holy Spirit submits to both the Father and the Son. In the Upper Room Discourse, it's very clear. Father says, Spirit, go. The Spirit goes. Son says, Spirit, go. The Spirit goes. The Spirit has submitted himself to both his companions in the Trinity. Submitted himself. Mutual submission. Ladies and gentlemen, Jot it down, will you please? Mutual submission is the secret to genuine unity. When I place your interests ahead of mine, when I love you sacrificially, in other words, at my own expense, how many marriages today could be saved if unity were defined as mutual submission? I submit myself to you. No, I submit myself to you. Mutual submission. I place your interests ahead of mine. I will love you sacrificially. Calvary. I want to put this sentence on the screen because I want you to just let this go deep in your mind. Calvary is the Trinity's most sublime exhibit of their mutual submission to our fallen race. Do you understand that the Trinity has submitted itself to this earth? And one member of the Trinity will forever and ever bear the form of humanity as evidence the Trinity has put our interests ahead of theirs, risking the entire kingdom in an effort to save the human race. And I tell you what, ladies and gentlemen, unity within community, it doesn't get any better than that. Unity within community saved us once upon a time, and unity within community can only save us now. Unity within community... Unity within community. That is our only salvation. So what do I do with this teaching? You got a next step for me this time, Dwight? Yep. Take out your connect card, will you? Take out your connect card. It's in your worship bowl, and it's this little card that Chaplain Jose talked about just a moment ago. You've already filled out this side of it. That's what you do when you come. You spend the first moments of your worship experience just making sure this side is filled out so that we can get to this side. I want to go to the back side. What's the next step? Because you can't come to a teaching like this and not take a next step. So turn your card around. My next step today is I want to read Jesus' John 17 prayer every day this next week. Well, I'm going to put a check mark there, and I want to invite you to put a check mark too. I will read John 17 every day this next week. It's the great, the great prayer. Of unity. And here's another check mark. I will seek to build unity within community. In my dormitory room, I will seek to build unity within community. In my marriage, I will seek to build unity within community. In my office place, I will seek to build unity within community. In my school, I will seek to build unity within community. Put a check mark there. You're saying, but Dwight, you know, I love this metaphor of the vine and the bread, and you know, I've never come to Jesus. I have never given my life to Jesus. You know what, my friend? Today is your day. You see this little box right here? 
You please put a check mark. I'm interested in beginning a relationship with Jesus. Put a check mark there. Our Connect team will get this. And tomorrow, the next day, in cyberspace, you will receive the steps to take to begin a life in relationship, in friendship with Jesus. You want to begin anew? I can't believe how many. Last week, for the last two weeks, we've just begun this card. The same number every week. New people saying, I want, to be, I want to begin my friendship. And by the way, those of you watching on live streaming, we got, we got responses from across the nation, and we were not even prepared. You will see an, a mechanism whereby you can same the, send the same decision, and we will honor that decision, and we'll try to get to you the material that we have here. I'm interested in beginning a relationship with Jesus. I would like, Dwight, could you send me some information on baptism? I love the idea of the Trinity coming to my baptism. I love the idea of being drawn into, a, into a, a friendship with a community that will last forever and ever. I want to be in that community. I want to be baptized like Jesus. I want them there that day. By the way, over here, we're, we're setting aside Saturday, April 21, or Saturday, April 28. Why not end the semester with you making the decision and sealing the decision? I want to be one with the Trinity. They're one together. I want to be a part of that oneness. Make the decision. Put a check mark there. You want information on church membership? Put a check mark there. We'll get that information to you. In, in, interested in serving on a team at PMC? Listen to this. I've got to tell you this. So I come to church today. It's early. And I see one of my seminary students who, uh, who uh, was in my preaching class last year. And I say, Raul, what are you all dressed up in the orange, of the, the orange of the traffic ministry? I didn't know you were on this team. He said, I wasn't. But you said the other day to sign up to serve the church. I went online. Twelve ministries will send you. You pick the one you want. He said, I picked traffic ministry, and I'm starting today. You're not going to have to take a month. You're not going to have to take a half a year to figure out what to do. We'll start, you to, we'll start you next Sabbath. If you want to serve Christ, come on. You're always thinking about studying, studying, socializing, socializing. I invite you to think about serving, serving. You're an adult. You've been sitting on these pews for a long time and you aren't serving. Go to that. We'll send you a website. You'll ch- pick the 12. Pick. You're, you pick. It's yours. And finally, I'd like to learn more, more about the Bible. 72 people last week sent in. I want to learn more about the Bible. Wow. If you'd like to know more about the Bible, we'll, we'll make sure that you know more about the Bible. In a moment, I'm going to pray with you. And then the ushers are going to come and we're going to receive our morning tithes and offerings. Today's, today's offering, by the way, is for this little church right here, the Andrews University Pioneer Memorial Church. It's to keep this church going. It's so that this church can minister to this campus and through you minister to the entire planet. A hundred nations are part of this congregation. If this church is a blessing to you, if you're a member in this congregation, thank you for your liberal generosity so that this congregation can continue to do what it's doing. I want to pray with you. We receive our morning tithes and offerings. And then at the end, two stanzas of this majestic Trinitarian hymn. This service doesn't end until those two stanzas. Look it. It's ten minutes before you're used to leaving. So stay right here. You know, we are so conditioned as American Adventists that when the preacher's done, I got what I came for and I'm out of here. No, you didn't get what you came for. There's a majestic Trinitarian hymn, just two short stanzas of it, holy, 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 and we're going we're gonna to sing with all our might. Then we go forth into the world with the Trinity. Let's pray first, and then our ushers will come. Dear God, Father, Son, and Spirit, you have emptied your throne 
and the treasury of heaven to save this runaway rebel race. And we will never be able to thank you enough. What we give now is just a, a humble, unselfish response. Take these gifts. The tithes return. Take them, multiply them. Grow your kingdom on earth even as it is in heaven. But dear God, there's a next step. We can't learn about you and not take a next step with you. So whether it's reading and praying John 17 every day this next week, and then beginning to grow unity within the little communities where we are, whether it's coming to Jesus for the first time, asking, please help me, show me what I must do to follow him in baptism, whether it's joining the church or joining a, a service or ministry team, whatever it is, dear God, bless our next steps. Let the Trinity join us in every step until that day when we shall be face to face. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.